The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. John Stott said that um, idealism has a twin sister, and its name is disillusion. So he was commenting there on, on the, the state that followed the, the Second World War, when the West kind of went through this period of back and forth between those two realities, idealism for the future to be better than it was, in fact, perfect, and then what they currently saw before them, which produced disillusionment. So people were looking for answers and hope, but what they saw led them to hopelessness. And today, people are still looking for answers and hope. Perhaps you've come this morning disillusioned with something in your life disillusioned with life itself, looking for answers, for something that would change things, something that you don't have, that if you did have it, things would be different. And if you're a member of our church, you know we hold out that hope every day and every week. We hold out that hope. We found that hope, the hope that transforms But you'll also know that there are some, in fact many, who have become disillusioned with those who hold out the hope, who have been disillusioned with the church, with us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote of an Indian man named Dr. Ambektar who fits that description. He said he was an outcast who had become then a leader of outcasts in India. And now he was investigating Buddhism. His chief reason for for investigating Buddhism was that he wanted to, quote, discover to what extent the religion of Buddha is a live thing. He said, I'm here to find out to what extent, as he put it, there is a dynamic power in the Buddhist religion. I want to find if it's alive. Has it something to give the, the masses of my fellow outcasts? Has it dynamic in it? Is it something that can uplift people? And the tragedy, Jones writes, of that kind of adventure that he took was that he'd already spent much time in America and Great Britain studying Christianity. And he had concluded that it was not a live thing. He found the absence of a dynamic in it. And so he was turning to Buddhism. My friends, we know he he won't find or didn't find life in Buddhism. And just because his experience of Christianity was a negative one, does it mean that Christianity is lifeless? Of course we know that is true. However, that is the challenge that is before us as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Those of us who have been given the life-changing gift of the Holy Spirit that resides and lives in us, those of us who have been given this, this gift, those of us who have been saved by God's grace, who know God and have been enabled to love God and to love others, it's a probing question. Is it alive? Is there life here? Are we living a countercultural kingdom life, or are we, like everyone else, just being discipled by the culture and conformed to what everyone else is doing and thinking like? And this is what we're going to spend the rest of the year thinking about as we turn to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived the Sermon on the Mount. One author referred to the Sermon on the Mount as the essence of Christianity. That's, no one's ever said that about my sermons. The definition of Christian discipleship and the ethic that characterizes God's people. 
However, statistics show that this sermon, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, has been largely neglected by contemporary America in, in particular. A recent Gallup poll indicates that only a third of adult Americans even identify Jesus with the sermon at all. Many say that it was preached by Billy Graham. But even those outside of Christianity admire this sermon. Many Jewish, Islamic, Hindu leaders praise it. While many contemporary Americans, our neighbors, point out a disconnect between Jesus' words and the lives of those that follow him. Perhaps you've even heard that said, I'm okay with Jesus, it's just Christians that I have a problem with. We can't escape this sermon. It is both beautiful and terrible. As one author writes, its words are winged words. Quick and powerful to rebuke, to challenge, inspire. It's the most searching and powerful utterance we possess on finding true life. So we're going to just dip our toe in this morning. I just want to give an, an overview of the sermon because not only is the Sermon on the Mount, I think, one of the most widely known sermons, it is also perhaps one of the most misunderstood. So in a sentence, here's how I would summarize what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the Spirit-transformed and transforming life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the Spirit-transformed and transforming life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I mean those words there intentionally. We'll unpack that more as we go. But if you want to see our great need to be born again by the power of the Spirit, we should look to the Sermon on the Mount. If we want to see what new life in Christ looks like, we should look to the Sermon on the Mount. He unpacks it for us. If we want to see how the Spirit works in us, what we've been given in the new birth, how Jesus sees the world, we should look to the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, I just want to mention three things about this sermon. If you want to take notes, there's a space in your bulletin there. You can take these down. I made three points. They all start with C. You're welcome, or I'm sorry, whichever way. Three things I'll mention about the the sermon. Um, So it's going to be fun preaching a sermon on a sermon. Number one, I want to mention cautions. Cautions regarding the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, I want to mention the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And then number three, the content of the sermon. So, uh, number one, cautions. Number two, content. I'm sorry, context. My bad. And then number three, content. My prayer is that the Lord would give us grace to take up the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we ourselves become living examples of it to the world around us. So let's begin with some brief just cautions as we approach this sermon. Historically, the Sermon on the Mount has been understood in various ways. And it's important for us to know that, I think, before we just jump in, because some of these things jump at us as we read it. And so just a brief overview. Um, As early as the writing of the Didache, which was this early church manual written uh, between AD 60 and AD 80, Christians have been reflecting on this sermon and thinking well about it, thinking hard about it. The authors of that, of that document saw the Sermon on the Mount as a description of the righteous life lived out by a follower of Jesus. So they saw that. But they also saw alongside that a sense in which we can't ever fully do this. 
We, we, can't, we can't live this out perfectly. Uh, it, it, it seems fully unattainable in this life. And, and so they concluded that there shouldn't be a sense of discouragement from, from studying the Sermon on the Mount, but that we ought to strive toward obedience to it, knowing that ultimately it will be fulfilled in us in the, in the last days. Uh, most interpreters believe the sermon was meant for all Christians, early interpreters who, would, who, would be tra- who had been transformed by God's grace. So Augustine was the first to actually refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. He saw it as applicable to believers who had experienced the new birth, who had been born again and inherited the characteristics of God through grace. Now, it was only later that you had theologians like Thomas Aquinas and some others who put forward the idea that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't for believers today um, really at all, and and it became more popular then. Uh, Aquinas had kind of a two-tiered system of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. There's some of these things that that we can all do, and there's some of these things that are only for the the, the most godly, special Christians among us. And the Reformers kind of saw that idea and rejected it, and they, they believed that the grace that was given to believers is the grace that enables obedience to Jesus' teaching. They made clear distinctions, however, between treating the Sermon on the Mount as a list of commands to be obeyed in order that you would be saved. Some of you may initially kind of knee-jerk in a way, look at it that way. They distinguished, no, that's not what it is. And rather they saw it as describing the fruit that comes to believers through saving grace. John Calvin saw it as as a rescue of the law of God from the Pharisees who viewed kind of had this picture of external obedience only. And so he called it the ethic of the new covenant. I think that's a helpful phrase, the ethic of the new covenant that would be fulfilled through, only through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant promises a new heart and a new mind. And so Calvin argued against uh, the Anabaptists of his day, for example, who took the approach that, that in order to obey fully the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, you actually have to withdraw from society. You have to go away from everyday life. Uh, so, for example, you can't take oaths, even in a court of law. Um, they taught that, 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 that acts of self-defense or any kind of military force was prohibited, so strict pacifism. And, and sometimes they would even argue against the possession of personal property. Is that how we're supposed to understand these words? Now, we have to be careful to say, well, of course not. I have personal property. And, you know, I'm pro this or that. We want to be careful not to read our culture into the sermon. We want to let the sermon read us. But, more recently, another kind of framework has arisen that sees the Sermon on the Mount as essentially irrelevant for Christians because it's seen as part of the Old Covenant law system. And since we live in kind of an age of grace, that system is no longer applicable to us. And so, Jesus' main purpose, these, these folks would say, is to set a standard so high that, that we realize no one can attain it. We're convicted of our sins and we turn to trust him. But the sermon itself has no real value to us other than that. They would suggest that this kind of living that is described here occurs only in the new heavens and the new earth. So the Sermon on the Mount has been seen in these various ways. Impossible, ignored, irrelevant, taken to extremes, perhaps beyond Jesus' own intent. And so I think what we want to do as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is, is understand that, that in context, and we'll say this here in a minute, Jesus is introducing and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And it is already at hand. And he is coming and calling his people already to hear and by grace follow him. But it is not yet fully consummated. Not yet fully installed. And I think we'll see that reality as we, as we go through. So three cautions, really quickly, that, that are going to maybe help you as, you as we study the Sermon on the Mount together. First one is, let me just caution you not to take it out of context. Don't take the Sermon on the Mount out of context. More about context here in a second. That's our second point. But I just want to encourage you not to lose the forest for the trees by focusing in on one or two sentences without keeping the entire sermon and the entire Bible, the entire Gospel of Matthew, in mind. I think that will help us in, 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 in not taking off on some very extreme views and actually going and gouging out our eyes. Or the other extreme, ignoring it altogether and saying, well, of course not. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he compares the sermon to a, a masterful piece of music that must be played all together from beginning to end and not dissected piece by piece, removing the parts from the whole. And a big part of the context of the Sermon on the Mount is the audience that it's addressed to. So look there in Matthew 5, verse 1. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is instruction intended for the disciples of Jesus. But Jesus isn't, isn't saying, you guys live like this and you'll become disciples. He's talking to disciples, saying, you are a disciple. This is how you're to live. So we need to keep the, the Sermon on the Mount in that context. Caution number two. Uh, don't view the Sermon on the Mount like a new law for you to keep, a, a new list of rules for you that you have to, to, to do in order for God to, to love you. That's not what it is. That's taking it out of its, out of its context, removing it from, from, from what, what it's meant to do. You'll, you'll be led to, to there just despair and totally miss the point of what Jesus is saying. We, we have to see the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the new birth. Through the lens of being born again by grace, regeneration. It's only by God's Spirit that we can embody these characteristics that are described, particularly in the Beatitudes, those first few verses. Only by God's Spirit are we going to be able to embody those characteristics. We can't muster that up in and of ourselves. God gives us new hearts that bring forth the actions of Matthew 5 to 7. God makes us new trees that will bear good fruit. God puts us on a narrow path that will lead to life. God puts our feet on the sure ground that is the rock of Jesus Christ. And friends, even then, as we understand that reality of of the new birth being born again, we know that until we're totally new, we're not going to do this all perfectly. Jesus assumes this, I think, even in his prayer as he leads us to ask for forgiveness. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of character, not a code of, of, of merely just a code of ethics or morals. Jesus is showing us what we're made to be. So it's not a ladder to climb or a law to keep. Let's keep that clear in your mind as we study it. Third caution, don't dismiss the Sermon on the Mount from your life today. Don't stiff-arm it when it comes to personal application. There are a couple of ways that I think we can do that. 
We can simply say, well, I know that I'm saved by grace. I'm seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus' teaching here. Uh, or I'm saved by grace, therefore I don't have this, this, this great urgency to walk in obedience to Jesus' teaching. Uh, because I'm saved. Since I'm not saved by my obedience, then I'm going to downplay any call to obedience whatsoever. And friends, you might not put it in those exact words, but you, you know the inclination that I'm talking about. And so just think about what Jesus says right before he goes up and to be at the right hand of the Father, ascending after his work, his cross work is done here on earth. He, he says we're to go and make disciples. We're disciples, we're to make disciples. And we're to do that by teaching them to observe, we could say obey, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And certainly that applies, this obedience to what Jesus commanded us to the Sermon on the Mount that we're about to study. Seeking to live out lives in obedience to Jesus and call others to do the same by the power of the Spirit. That's what we, that's what we are called to do. So we don't want to explain away the teaching of Jesus or de-emphasize its personal application in our own life. Another way you could do that is just to dismiss the conviction of sin that comes upon you as you read it. And, and we're faced with it. Like, that's not the only purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, to show us our sin, but it does do that. It does show us our need for a Savior and our need to be born again. And so if we're not a Christian and we read the Sermon on the Mount, it is going to read like law to us. Because we know there's no way we can do this, not even close. Or we might look at it and say, yeah, I've got this, no problem. But we need God to convict us of our sin, that we would turn from it and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for us and was raised from the grave, that we might have new life. And that new life is going to look very much like what we see in Matthew 5 to 7. So if we find ourselves just kind of arguing with any point on the Sermon on the Mount internally, we just need to remember where the problem lies. It's either with us or with our interpretation or the preacher you're listening to of what Jesus is saying. Stott says again, the Sermon on the Mount portrays the repentance and righteousness which belong in the kingdom. It doesn't just lead us to repent. It shows us what a repentant life looks like. It shows us what a life that, that oozes out the grace that we've been shown looks like. A life that is lived under the gracious rule of God. And for us, that's lived in the context of community where we all live under this gracious rule of God. We have been saved by him. So if our lives aren't being lived under that rule in some way, the sermon shines a light. And we ought to praise God for that. Don't ignore the Spirit's prompting. Don't, don't think Jesus is only addressing the super spiritual, the super godly saints of the world. He's talking to you and he's talking to me. Now, more than just giving you some cautions, I want to show you some of the why behind those, those cautions. The reasons we should hear the, the grace and power of the gospel in the background of the sermon. So let's look about the context. Number two, the context. I don't think there's another comment that could be more hurtful to a follower of Jesus than the words, but you're no different than anyone else. You're no different than anyone else. One of my favorite excuses when I was a non-Christian Growing up, high school, you're not any different than me. Why should I go after Christ? 
throughout the scriptures, we, we, we want to understand, as we think about the context, we think about the background of this sermon, that God is calling and creating a distinct people for himself to not be like everyone else. That this people is to be holy and set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey to him. And this is the, the identity of the people of God, to be holy and to be different, different in our outlook, different in our, our life, the way that we live. God said to Moses, after he delivered the people from Egypt, Leviticus 18, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. It's because of who God is, his people are to be different from the world around them. But as you know, we've spent months studying the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Israel keep forgetting their distinctive nature as God's people, keep conforming to the world around them. So the psalmist says in Psalm 106.35, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. Exactly what God said not to do. And God continued to send this prophetic witness to call the people back to him, to their true identity as God's distinct people. And they continued to rebel and walk in idolatry like the world. So we need to remember that as we look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. We're we're, we're actually looking at a sermon within a a narrative of the life of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount takes place toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness. And he had then begun to announce the good news that the kingdom of God has come, is now here. And this kingdom would look differently than the world looks. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a call for a distinct people to live out a distinct witness that glorifies a distinct God. It may make us look a little weird to the world around us, but our character is to be completely distinct from what is admired in the world, so that should seem normal. We're to shine like lights in the darkness, Jesus says. There's no single paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount that doesn't contrast the life of a Christian and a non-Christian or or merely a Christian and a religious person. Followers of Jesus are different from both of those. Different from the nominal church and different from the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. So our attitude toward money and ambition and lifestyle and relationships are all otherworldly. This is what the Sermon on the Mount lays out for us. But more than just the context of the Bible story, there seems to be a specific connection between Jesus and one particular Old Testament character, Moses. So so Matthew begins with the account in Matthew's gospel of Jesus' birth with with an evil pagan king who killed all the male infants in Bethlehem, age two and below, because he felt his kingdom was threatened. And so God intervenes and protects Jesus, sends Jesus and his mother to Egypt— And we read in Matthew 2.15, out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is almost a replay, isn't it, of Exodus 1. When another evil king ordered the slaughter of all male Israelite infants in Egypt because he was threatened by them. Look again at verse 1 of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. The words, he went up on the mountain, are kind of the exact verbal parallel 
to Exodus 19.3 when Moses ascends the mountain in Mount Sinai. So Jewish ears would have perked up at this phrase and begin to connect Jesus to Moses. But you need to know, not, not mainly as a lawgiver. Moses was that. But, but the people of Israel saw Moses fundamentally as a redeemer, a deliverer, as a savior. Remember, Moses' giving of the law only comes after the exodus, after the people have been rescued. Which means that's very significant. So the words of Deuteronomy 18 also kind of hover over the Sermon on the Mount. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and following. The the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them. He will speak all of them that I have commanded him. And that's what Jesus does here in Matthew 5. He ascends the mountain. He opens his mouth and teaches them. Matthew, I think, wants us to see Jesus as a new Moses, but not just not in that sense of lawgiver, but as someone who is leading a new exodus. Jesus is leading God's people out of their bondage to sin. He's come to set captives free. The the great redeemer, as one author put it, has cried, let my people go. He has removed their shackles, killed their old harsh taskmaster, crushed the power of their dark Pharaoh, and led them to freedom across the parted sea. And the, sovereign, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount just describes that freedom, that righteousness that would be lived out by those who have experienced this emancipation from slavery to sin. This helps us, I think, understand the sermon. To put it in perspective, it's describing the life of someone who's been set free. Someone who has been made new. And this newness is demonstrated, you'll notice as you read, in, in heart change. So the promise of the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, was that there would be a day coming when God would make a new covenant. So not like the Mosaic covenant, a new covenant, when his teaching would be actually within his people, written on their hearts. God would actually change the people from the inside out. And their character would begin to resemble his own character. And their lives would be pleasing to him. We must remember the Sermon on the Mount is smack dab in the middle of the story of the Son of God who came to live a perfect life, die for us, to save us, and rose from the grave. Don't take it out of that that context. Jesus is saving us. That's what we're reading about. He died for us to purchase this forgiveness, to inaugurate this new covenant. Near the end of his ministry, he's passing around the wine at the, the, the Lord's Supper. And we read, for this is the blood of, my co- of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's why so much of the Sermon on the Mount deals with the heart, not just the hands, not just commands and actions. Jesus provides amazing, transforming righteousness to us. He is leading a new exodus. And he is creating new creations by his grace. And he's cutting a new covenant. He has cut a new covenant. That not only just brings about forgiveness, but it enables this this growing, thriving relationship with God. Growth in personal holiness and love for God and love for others. So not just saving us from something, but to something. Jesus is to be seen like, to be like Moses. But friends, he is greater than Moses. 
Hebrews 3.5, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So friends, Jesus is more than a teacher. He's the son of God who is faithful over God's house because he died for God's people. He rose from the grave to make us his. This is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, let's take a a thousand foot view of the content itself of the sermon. Number three, content. Uh, There's various ways we could divide up the sermon. Um, If you look at your sermon card, you can see we're going to preach 20 sermons um, through the Sermon on the Mount. And we could have easily done 50 uh, or or 75 or however many you want to do. I would encourage you to take these sermon cards, as Billy said already, prayerfully prepare each week by reading that sermon text, perhaps in your quiet time, perhaps you want to you stay along with this, kind of a slower pace, perhaps you want to just continue to read the Sermon on the Mount and, and add it to whatever you're normally reading, but keeping it before you, asking God prayerfully to open up your eyes and, and your mind to it, that you wouldn't be stiff-arming application, but you'd be hearing what God says and seeking to, to by the Spirit, walk it out, Perhaps you want to try to commit it to memory and just work at putting this in your mind's bank forever. Uh, That won't be a waste of time, seeking to memorize the words of Jesus here. Let me give you an outline here, uh, kind of under seven headings of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to take notes, just to get a framework, okay? Um, The first section we, we would call Matthew 5, um, what we're doing today is verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to, 3 to 12, we would just say, is a description of the Christian's character. The Christian's character. So these verses are referred to as the Beatitudes. You're familiar with these. They, they represent eight marks or so of Christian character that are wrought by the Spirit. And then also, I think, eight calls to just progress in that character, to grow in the character of God that He has blessed us with through Christ. So remember, this is, a, this is a description of those who have been transformed, E.D., and are being transformed or transforming. So we have not arrived in, in our transformation and will not arrive until we are fully glorified. So as we study each mark, we, 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 we see in the Beatitudes also a blessing associated with that particular Beatitude. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The pure in heart shall see God. The peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Believer, I just want you to see that is a description of you. That is what God has made you in Christ. You don't conjure that up in your own personal uh, obedience bank. God has made made you that in Christ and now is calling you to walk it out and live it out by his grace. The second heading that we see um, here is is, is a section that describes the influence of a Christian disciple. So verses 13 to 16, those two metaphors that you're familiar with, Jesus uses salt and light. So we live as this distinct holy people changed by his grace. We bring about a kind of tastiness of life and an enlightened view for the world to see God. Salt and light, city set on a hill. The third section has to do with the disciples' righteousness. Verses 17 all the way down to verse 48. 
So, so here we are learning that Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but actually to fulfill them. And he has come to fulfill them that the righteousness of Christ might be ours. And that righteousness would surpass even that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were, who were focused on this external obedience only. Jesus brings about inward change, final change. And then he gives six illustrations of how that kind of works itself out. In, in anger, or like Jesus likes to call it, murder. Adultery, divorce, swearing oaths, revenge, and love. In each section, he just rejects the way I think the scribes have kind of understood life. You've heard it said, and he sets the standard of, I say unto you. That's the third section. The fourth heading would describe a Christian's holiness. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Disciples of Jesus are not to resemble the hypocrites of religion who are doing things only to be seen by others. Nor are they to look like the pagans of the world who would use flowery language to make it sound like they know something that they don't and that God would accept them because of their mighty words, their many words. The life of a disciple is to be marked by sincerity and a desire to live a life that's pleasing to God in the presence of God. That's what we see in that fourth section. Then the fifth section deals with a Christian's ambition. Ambition. This is chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Look there at verse 19 of chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be or devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says our lives are like a treasure map that point to what we value most. Friend, what is that for you? What do you treasure most? Is it, is it your money? He says we can't serve both God and money. We have to decide. The quest for food and drink and clothing. Those are the things the Gentiles are aiming at. But Jesus says, look away from those material anxieties and put your trust in God by making him your treasure. Our supreme ambition is to be God's glory, not even our own or our own material well-being. It's a question of what we will seek first. The next section, number six, deals with a Christian's relationships. So chapter seven, all the way down from verse one down to verse 20, we're thinking about what it means. So if we're properly connected and related to God as followers of Jesus, all of our lives, including all of our relationships, are going to be radically different. Radically changed, radically affected. So we're not going to judge our our brother, the most popular verse in America today. But we're going to serve him. We're not going to throw our pearls before swine. We're going to keep praying to our Heavenly Father, even when we don't see what we want to see happen, trusting that he's a good father. We're going to watch carefully for false teachers who deceive people onto a path that leads to destruction. We're going to love others the way that we ourselves wish to be loved. 
this new life isn't to be lived in isolation, just me and Jesus, but with others in the context of this community, this redeemed community. Last section, number seven, describes a Christian's commitment. And really, this is where it just comes down to what do you believe about the authority of the preacher of the sermon? Not this sermon, but the sermon in the Bible. What do you believe about the authority of Jesus? Do you just want to call him Lord and be done with it? you just want to listen to his teaching with a smiling nod? Matthew 7, verse 21, look there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is after more than just hearing what he's saying. Information kind of transfer. Verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Friends, what are we going to build on? What are, we, are we going to listen and build the way Jesus calls us to? Well, it depends on what we, what we think about the authority of the preacher, the one speaking. The crowds hear Jesus' teaching. They notice something is different about him. Look at uh, verse 28, chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Friend, what do you make of Jesus? What do you make of his teaching? Is it authoritative for you? His claim, is it a claim on your life? Do pray for this sermon series. Pray for me. Uh, Pray for your own heart as you receive from God's word week in and week out. And pray for the person who is not here this morning but that we pray would meet God this year because of what he's doing in us. And how exciting is it to just imagine what would happen if we, in our church, and if believers across the city and across the country just freshly committed ourselves to following the preacher of this sermon. No matter what stage of life we're in. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says this, Here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So really what we're doing is the elders are just rolling out a new evangelistic program. Seeking to to, to live a life where our, our good works Um, shine, and God receives the glory. Where Jesus is glorified as we live out the grace that he has shown us. And and people can look in and see there is a great dynamic, a great life here in following Jesus. Jesus enables us to live out the life that he describes here. He has made it possible for us. We won't do it perfectly, but we will look to him for his help and pray that it would be done powerfully. Jesus answered David's prayer, I think, in, in, in Psalm 51, verse 10, when he prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How is that prayer answered? I think it's answered in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God saves us 
He purifies us that we might know him. So I just pray that our attitude would be this fall, as we look at this sermon, that of Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friends, he alone can provide that true righteousness. Only he can satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in us as we look at your word this fall. Lord, we look forward to just meditating on the great power of the gospel and all that it has produced in us. And we pray that you would make us a living and breathing arrow that points to you, points to the transforming power of Christ. We pray that you would be shown as the great redeemer and savior of your people. And we do pray that you would draw many to yourself. Lord, how we need you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.